This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? We'll see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me? This is Wade Rathke, and you're listening to Wade's World, a voice of the people program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west, where we are either rebroadcast or live streamed at kabf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available this show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Professor Janet Jacobson, who is a professor at Barnard College in New York City, about her new book, The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. What a great title. Welcome to Wage World, Janet. Thank you very much for having me, Wade. I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, I was was telling you before we got on the air, I love reading this book, but it is a dense book. This is a well-constructed argument. One of my, we're just going to jump right into it, Janet. Okay. What's the uh, overall push that led you to write this book and particularly to put it out right now? Um, well, I, um, my PhD is in uh, religious ethics. Actually, I'm trained in ethics and the study of religion, and I've often worked and been appointed in uh, women's gender and sexuality studies programs and was for many years um, the director of the research center, the Barnard Center for Research on Women at my college. Um, and when I stepped down from that uh, uh, in July of 2015, the 2016 election cycle had begun. Uh, Donald Trump had declared his presidency, and I um, thought, you know, my training in terms of uh, thinking about religion and thinking about issues of uh, gender and sexuality uh, is going to be relevant to what's happening. Um, And um, so I started doing research on um, that intersection in relation to American politics and uh, was fortunate enough to finish the book, and academic books take a long time to get out, but uh, to have it come out at this time, and uh, sure enough, uh, gender, sexuality, and religion have been uh, mainstays, not only in the two election cycles, but uh, throughout the last five years. Well, and they're always important, but you argue it's a real mistake to see these as islands unto themselves. Yes, that, that is in fact the main argument of the book, which is that um, we tend to pull out single issues when in fact we live in a very complex world that's um, where issues are moving around in relation to each other, that they're entangled, if you will. Um, and that in particular, when we think about religion, um, we generally associate it with sexuality. And similarly, when we think about sexuality, gender and sexuality, we associate them with religion. And in doing that, we narrow all kinds of political possibility, both in terms of uh, what religion is in many people's lives, which is that, one, uh, not all religions are sexually conservative, not all religions uh, in, in, encourage gender hierarchy, um, and many religious people are committed to social justice on a range of issues, immigration, the environment, the economy, war and peace. 
Um, and all of that, uh, you know, really disappears and is actively pushed out. I, I look at Supreme Court cases in the book and their unwillingness to take up uh, cases related to, for example, religion and the environment. Um, and on the other side, when we think about what gender and sexuality is about, it tends to also be a narrow set of issues. And what I found in doing research for the book is that, in fact, gender and sexuality plays a role in a lot of different issues, in the ones we would readily identify, reproductive justice, equal pay, sexual harassment at work, uh, violence, but also in terms of economics, again, immigration, health care, the environment, etc. And so part of what the book tries to do is put those issues back in context so that we can understand what's really happening in our political life. Part of the theme that you uh, use to encapsulate that kind of argument is uh, one that I loved and told you by email I was going to steal as soon as I, I could, and I, I'm not doing it in the dark of night right here in the public. <laughs> but you have this phrase, productive incoherence, because part of what you argue is that these things are not binary. They're all intersectional um, and in a vastly more complex way than maybe some other people would try to argue as they try to create coherence. But this, explain to our listeners what protective incoherence really is. Yes. Yeah, so what I'm interested in is how is common sense produced. And we assume that common sense is produced by the most coherent arguments. And in fact, uh, kind of the opposite is true, that uh, incoherence that can be held together, um, made productive, is the most effective in political formation. And we can see that actually on full display um, in the current administration. So I'll just take, uh, you know, the Trump administration's response to COVID, which is utterly incoherent. Um, On the one hand, the administration claims uh, vaccines are coming, they're just around the corner. On the other hand, oh, you know, herd immunity, we're just going to wait and see what happens. If you were really dedicated to vaccines, you would be encouraging people to stay home, protect themselves, do everything they can not to get um, infected until there is a vaccine. But instead, um, the administration promotes both of these, even though they're not coherent with each other. Um, And so then we have to ask, what does that produce? Well, it produces a narrative in which in either case, no matter what, uh, the administration is not responsible for doing anything. Um, And that happens on issue after issue. Um, In this administration, certainly, if you take any issue, you can find, um, you know, the uh, administration being all over the map in terms of what they're promoting. Um, And that happens also in... Um, a range of other thinking where we try to set up these binaries so as to cover over the fact that all kinds of issues are um, variously complex um, and that if we could look at that complexity, and I want to emphasize that part of what I get to at the end, justice from the ground up, is time to take small steps around you so as not to be overwhelmed by that complexity. Indeed, and uh, we could say that Uh, a metaphor that kept jumping into my mind was uh, productive incoherence is a little bit like heads you win, tails you win. Exactly. (laughs) But uh, it's not when you use the, the, uh, the, the basic metaphor of the book looks at a kaleidoscope, which is, uh, I found it was an interesting way to look at this. Would you share that with people? Yes. So what I'm interested in is it's not that, you know, this complexity that I'm talking about, um, uh, is just, you know, some overwhelming scattershot thing that, that in fact, what happens is uh, these, if you will, incoherent pieces of, of our common sense are held together in different patterns. 
um, and those patterns can shift, uh, but they are in one way amazingly stable. We actually stay within the, the constraints of, of a given set of, of uh, uh, pieces, um, and yet when we look at the patterns, it feels like a lot of change is happening. Um, and one of the questions that, that I went into the book with is, why does it seem like social change is happening all the time? I was born in 1960, and I have watched and participated in all kinds of social change around questions of racial justice, um, you know, gender and sexuality, um, you know, even some moves now toward uh, environmental justice. Uh, but at the same time, all kinds of issues don't change. We here in 2020 are still talking about voting rights as really central to our political life, despite the fact that, um, you know, the 15th Amendment was, was uh, um, you know, supposed to say that there would be no blocks to voting on the basis of race, the 19th Amendment on the basis of gender, and then in the 1960s we had the Voting Rights Act, and then here we are talking about it still in 2020. And my question was why in a democracy that supposedly values voting and majority rule so strongly, are we still talking about voting rights? Um, and so I was interested in how it can seem like change is happening, and yet it's not. You know, we're still talking about voting rights, and that um, is part of how the kaleidoscope works, where it looks like things are changing, and yet we're, in fact, uh, moving around in, in, in a circle in what I call mobility for stasis. And I found that so painful to read. I've uh, spent more than 50 years as an organizer, starting with welfare rights and obviously still with ACORN after 50 years. And uh, I've warned people that no matter what happens on November 3rd, it could take the full four years to get back to where we were at the end of the Obama administration, and we weren't happy then. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and often I can still remember, you know, uh, the adequate income fights in the late 60s when I started as an organizer with welfare rights and almost everything about welfare provisions for mothers with children are worse today by a long shot than they were 50 years ago. Um, so we've done all this work, won all these victories, and where are we? Here we are talking to Janet Jacobson, a professor uh, who was at Barnum, Universi Barnum University and has written a very interesting book. The title is, is uh, the kind of thing that catches your eye, you know, the sex obsession, you know, you kind of put this under your folder when you're out in public, but it's perversity and possibility <laughs> in American politics. And if you think this is a racy book, wrong. But if you think it's uh, on the money, uh, it's very interesting. Let's talk to people about uh, the kaleidoscope that I thought so fascinating because it's sort of you know, it's not something you think about every day. It's something that we remember as, ch as children, sort of uh, waving the colors around. But it made sense because it also, the patterns seem to change, but they're the same. But uh, talk to me about differential consciousness. That was another, another interesting concept that you credited to a, a colleague, but uh, still fits into the same argument, doesn't it, Professor? Yes, and that's a great question. So this uh, concept, differential consciousness, is, was um, uh, originated with uh, Chela Sandoval, who um, is a colleague who's in, uh, you know, sort of my cohort and was very involved in women of color feminism in the 1980s. And part of what um, she was trying to talk about and uh, that is still relevant today is how is it that we can form what I, in my first book, talked about as alliances, coalitions, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, a diverse multitude? Um, how is it that we can come together across difference without having to erase those differences? Um, and how is it that um, we can acknowledge that people, in fact, have really different consciousnesses about the world based on their experience? And we see this in, in religious studies, which is to say there are all different kinds of calendars. We assume that, that a, a Christian calendar, which is now a secular calendar, is how everybody lives. But, in fact, many people live in different types of times. So, you know, they're living, for example, Islam is organized around a lunar calendar. So um, you're not even using the same year in your religious practice, and yet at the same time Muslims are also participating in all aspects of, of uh, life on the, what is now the secular calendar. And so that sense that you're living in different consciousnesses or to, you know, go to Du Bois' double consciousness, where people are holding together different worlds that can't be made coherent, nor should they be. And this is where Sandoval is saying we need to organize around this as the reality that people experience and as one that can actually be helpful because we are not trying to come to the table and get people to agree on everything, uh, but rather we're trying to, again, find a way, and this is where productive incoherence can be helpful for organizing, we're trying to find a way that we can live with this differential consciousness, acknowledge it, allow people to talk about it directly without them having to be forced into agreement, and then organize on the basis of it so that people can really work together across difference. And part of that uh, is recognizing the power of universals, but also complex universals, uh, as you argue in the book. Yes, I mean, I'm, and some of my colleagues are different on this, but I'm not one to give up on, on uh, uh, universal claims, you know, um, and uh, the example that I use uh, in the book comes out of the prison abolition movement and uh, an organizer, an artist um, named Tourmaline, who um, uh, argues that no one is disposable, right? We should not be sending people to prison because no one is their, whatever their worst act may be. None of us want to be held to whatever our worst act might be. And no one can just be uh, thrown away or discarded as we uh, seem to do in our society. That's a universal claim. No one. And I think a very powerful and important one that changes how we think about uh, what we understand to be justice in relation to violence and harm. And in particular, we're not trying to decide this person's guilty, this person's innocent, and, and um, we know the ways in which that breaks down around race and gender and, and the like. Um, so that kind of universal claim is very, very important. And yet, if Sandoval is right, and you know, we have now decades of women of color organizing to um, support this, then we also are not all just going to come together into a happily ever after uh, vision of a utopia in which everyone is the same. Um, and so uh, part of what I'm interested in is how we can make these kind of powerful claims. Uh, no one is disposable. Um, you know, violence is wrong. You know, basic uh, understandings. And at the same time, uh, be able to organize in ways that uh, promote everybody's well-being as opposed to just those who fit whatever the, the standards are, whether those are the standards of the movement or whether those are the standards of mainstream society. The power, as you say, of universal claims is so important. I mean, the, our ability to label campaigns around wages as living wages uh, right. uh, is, you know, certainly made a huge difference to us for more than a decade in winning uh, increases city and state by city. And the opposition's ability to 
uh, talk about right to work uh, that totally eroded an understanding of what unions contribute and how dues systems work. I mean, it has nothing to do with right to work. It has right, only yeah, to do with yeah. the very trivial matter in some cases of how you collect dues. But uh, these, uh, and, and even the current Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's sort of interesting how that is pushed back on all lives or blue lives or whatever because the very power of that is unquestionable. It's categorical. Yes, of course black lives matter. And if that demand is coming from the streets and loud voices, it even is more powerful. But uh, it is complex. But this, uh, you use the uh, story about uh, disability rights and the campaigns to uh, move access forward and disability as something that had to be integrated into these uh, differentials and universalities. Yes, and so um, my partner, Christina Crosby, um, uh, experienced a spinal cord injury in a bicycle accident and has been um, paralyzed ever since and is a wheelchair user, and I've spent a lot of time in uh, disability active spaces as a result. And one of the things that I learned is that um, this concept of universal access or universal design is so important, again, in the claim. Yes, the public sphere should be open to everyone. Everyone should have a home that is accessible to and supportive of whatever their uh, physical needs might be. And yet there's no single type of disability, even amongst people who are wheelchair users. They have all different kinds of uh, needs. And then certainly if we, for example, one of the examples I use in the book is the first time I went with Christina to the Society for Disability Studies and the conference was at a hotel, which was great for her. You know, big, long, open hallways, lots of elevator banks, um, you know, things that are not always the case, for example, in, in college and university buildings. Um, and yet for people in uh, who have environmental um, illnesses or uh, allergies to chemical uh, 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 substances, you know, hotels are terrible. They're just full of cleaning chemicals. Um, and so how do you work out those two very different and possibly contradictory needs? And so one way is to have it in a place where you can be outside and have, you know, outside venues as well as inside venues. And, um, you know, trying to think through those things at that very ground level, um, uh, you know, and this is very much what organizing is about, is trying to say where are people at and how do we build from there? Um, has potential for this broader concept of what universal access might be. So if we have to spend time in a meeting figuring out how we can have a meeting with wheelchair users and people with environmental illnesses and people um, who are deaf and blind and, um, you know, whatever the issues might be, that meeting also tells us something about how we can imagine social relations differently. Is there some small silver lining in the pandemic that might aid in that sort of recognition of how space works for people and their concerns? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I do talk about... Now, come on, um, don't tell me I finally stumped you. <laughs> <laughs> we can't foretell the future, unfortunately, neither you nor me. So now, yeah, now, now they've caught us. about melancholy utopias, although um, I'm now not melancholy. But, um, um, and the idea there is to acknowledge our losses. You know, in this pandemic, the losses are so huge, and they seem to be so unnecessary. We, of course, can't know what would have been, uh, but it seems uh, quite clear that not this many people needed to die or get sick. Or, And, you know, I think a lot because of um, 
Christina's experience about what does it mean to have a lifelong illness? This is not something that's just washed away because a person happened to survive. You know, to um, say lots of people are now going to have lifelong challenges, that matters. Um, So that's a real loss. On the other side, there is, I think, uh, some hope again, and this is to me what organizing can do. What can we build from the, the place in which we find ourselves? And I think from here we could build a, a system. For example, we could rebuild our healthcare system. We could really understand um, the ways in which our healthcare system is broken. And just to name one that's related to your concern about wages, almost every person who does patient centered healthcare is underpaid. Absolutely and has almost always has to have more than one job. Um, and what that means is they're moving from facility to facility or you know, from a home to um, a facility. And what that does is it's not good for those workers it's, and it's not good for the people that they care for. And if we could just add, my mother um, was living, uh, she lived in Iowa, but I moved her to be close to me the last year of her life and she was living in an assisted living facility. And I felt like just one more person per shift um, and a living wage for those people. And her whole experience, as well as the workers' experience, would have been very different. And their experiences of the pandemic would have been very different because people would have been working in only one facility. That basic thing, let us pay people who do health care as if they are the essential workers that they are, I would hope that we could really build on that um, from here because I just think that we've seen what essential work is, and it's almost all underpaid. You're, you're hitting a chord here. I've, you know, we represent nursing home workers, and the number of times we've dealt with issues that define abuse versus neglect, and the, right. the real issue is not enough, not enough staff on the floors. We're talking to Janet Jacobson, uh, who uh, has been a professor for a long time of gender studies and has written a great book called The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. I have to add, when we talk about the price of COVID just today at a piece in the New York Times, count another 100,000 people who have died indirectly because of uh, the COVID situation because they didn't or weren't able to get health care. Janet, you uh, talk about something dear to my heart, which is the ability to put constituencies together. And in this case, uh, we were talking about caregivers and disabled, but uh, you know, there are other experiences, certainly uh, when we were trying to win uh, home daycare uh, facilities and centers uh, in Massachusetts and elsewhere by linking parents who needed that kind of daycare with the state support and reimbursement for those people and trying to make it more of an entitlement. That was key. If you can get providers and beneficiaries together, uh, you're almost there. Don't you see that uh, as having real potential? I do. And in fact, this is one of the key questions about how does gender and sexuality play out in our, our um, uh, politics. So what we're talking about is a form of caring labor that is itself feminized. It's not always done by women, but the labor itself is feminized, and so it's devalued in some way. Um, and, you know, being able to attend to that as about valuing, you know, what's called social reproduction or valuing, you know, what is traditionally been seen as women's work or, or uh, feminized labor um, is uh, just very, very important. And it would shift away 
um, you know, from, uh, and this is sort of the perversity, that valuing, strangely, valuing essential work and caring labor is perverse in our current set of, of incentives, right? The value is instead put on how we can, uh, you know, take over nursing homes by large corporations and have them uh, be run as if uh, the most important thing that can happen out of a situation that in which people's lives, on which people's lives depend, the most important thing to come out of that is shareholder value. Um, you know, being able to talk about those issues or uh, being able to be critical of how do we address poverty in the United States, one of the main ways is by pouring millions of dollars into what's called marriage promotion, right? The idea that, oh, if we just allow people to get married and stay married, they will be um, somehow magically middle class as opposed to the idea that it's probably the opposite, that, that the more economic support people have, the easier it is to stay um, in a relationship. So, you know, choosing what do we want around gender and sexuality, an economic policy that values caring labor or an economic policy that, uh, uh, you know, tries to promote marriage, which doesn't succeed in that, nor does it move anybody out of poverty. I can tell you from the ground level, uh, nursing home workers, uh, nursing home chains and community home facilities for people differently abled all make it a firing offense if you start talking to the families of the clientele. Um, yeah. And so they understand the power of it, but too often, uh, as you've argued in your book, we don't understand the power of why we have to create those relationships. I mean, you've raised perversity, it was in the title, but you also use promiscuous in an interesting way that most people might not, might not occur to them to think about promiscuous theory and promiscuous practice. Why don't you uh, lay that out for people for a minute? Yeah, so uh, what I'm interested in here is the ways in which um, we are taught, and, and this is true for movement organizers as well as, you know, just sort of uh, mainstream culture, you know, to be disciplined in particular ways and stick to our issues, stick to your lane. You know, these are, these are things that I've heard in a lot of movement settings. And um, what I argue instead is that we need to be, have more facility and more practice at moving around. You know, so what is the connection between, uh, uh, you know, the Fight for 15 or other wage uh, um, movement, you know, living wage movements uh, and gender and sexuality? Exactly. You know, what is the relation between the environment and housing, you know, where we cut down forests to make farms and then we have those farms grow houses? You know, that all of those issues are currently separate. Um, and we can sometimes now, thanks to the work of many black feminists, and, and the idea of intersectionality, we can focus on sort of one intersection, the relation, for example, between race and environment, race and, and, um, uh, and housing. But, you know, race, the environment, and housing are rarely held together. And so um, what I'm interested in, and I, I take practice seriously in both its senses, which is actually doing things. I think that, that being able to do things, we learn from that. Um, so even though I'm now an academic, I, I think that practice produces knowledge but also um, uh, practice as in we got to try things. Um, and so being able to move a little promiscuously amongst issues or, um, uh, you know, different cultural settings, whatever it might be, uh, will enable, I think, that, that kind of building of connections from the ground up where in order to actually be politically effective people, with people, you need to know them. You know, me as the family of someone who's living in a assisted living, you know, facility, I do need to know the people that, that work there um, for all kinds of reasons, including so that I understand what their working conditions are and do whatever I can to make them better. And frankly, that means they do a better job when they know you. I, I was also struck uh, 
This whole intersectionality. We did a report a couple of years ago about the lack of change in electric co-ops, where mm. they throughout the South uh, there was almost no representation of black or brown members of these co-ops. They were still stuck in the 50s. There were almost no women. And yeah. So the practices were not democratic, and they weren't representative of the people who they served. I mean, deep South and still... You know, the Delta, Mississippi, 100% white elderly men on the board of these electric co-ops. And in talking to others who were interested in the cooperative movement, it, it was very difficult to ever get support because they believed we needed to just learn to live with that because they were trying to convince these people to go solar. Right, well, yeah. And I just, the top of my head would blow off. Uh, it's just this whole... People hear a lot about intersectionality, but that's really what we need to make the dominant concern from what I read in your book. Yes, absolutely. And part of it is this, which is, um, you know, and this goes back to differential consciousness, double consciousness. There's all kinds of things we don't know about um, what people's lives are like. So until I became very involved in caring for my partner or for my mother, there's lots I didn't know about what it took to get health care every day, right? Um, and so being able to talk with people about what their lives are like in terms of what their energy needs are, in terms of do they have heat, do they have the heat that they need, or, or um, you know, in the South, do they have air conditioning or, you know, electric lighting, whatever it is. People from the top down, they don't know um, uh, exactly what's going on or what can be needed, and they're not going to have the most creative solutions either. That's right. Um, and, you need to um, let people yeah. know how to get your book. Oh, okay. Um, so the book is from NYU Press. You can go to nyupress.org. You can, of course, go to your local independent bookstore and just ask for it. Um, uh, and also, uh, you can find a link to it on my website, which is janetjacobson.org. And I'm going to spell that for you because my name is a little different from the usual spelling. So it's J-A-N-E-T-J-A-K-O-B. S-E-N.org. Janet Jacobson, all one word.org. That's a K, not a C, and an E, not an O. And uh, you have an email connected to that website? Um, uh, yes, people can reach me at my Barnard email, which is J Jacobson, again spelled J J J A K O B S E N, at Barnard, B A R N A R D dot E D U. As you can tell, uh, this book is, uh, you know, you're taking a weight when you start it, but you can't <laughs> stop it, and you need to read this seriously, as I did. Uh, I confess to Professor Jacobson that uh, she made me work on this one, and that's not a bad thing. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard, and as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrell Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we have another guest, this is Wade Rathke from Wage World. Thank you.